What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Section 9 of The Gleam in the North by D.K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Eileen. Chapter 9. The Worm at the Heart 1. Although in the weeks to come it never occurred to Ewan, who was besides well able to look after himself, that he had been abandoned to his fate on Ardgower Beach, he was only to wish sometimes that he had not been quite so precipitate in leaping ashore with the rope. Hector Grant was often to feel remorse for the safety which had been bestowed on him while his brother-in-law had been left to fend for himself. It was true that the stewards had kept the boat hanging about on the other side of the narrows as long as they dared, but no figure had appeared to claim their help, and young Invernacree avowed that he hardly dared hope for it because of the presence of the soldiers on the spit. Yet since, by the last he had seen of the drama on the shore, Ardroy appeared to be out-distancing his pursuers. Ian had every confidence that he would make his way down the farther side of Loch Linne into Morven, and thence cross to Inverna Cree, for which, after relinquishing the hope of taking him off at Clovelin, the rowers had then made with what speed was left in them. At Inverna Cree, Hector was sheltered for a night or two, during which he gave up his former project of crossing to Ireland, and so to France, for the desire to know what had happened to wreck the scheme for kidnapping the elector was drawing him, in spite of the hazards, to London. And so here he was, this cold January evening, actually in the capital, a refuge much less safe, one would have thought, than his unlucky relatives in the wilds of Ardgower. But Hector was a young gentleman attracted, rather than repelled, by danger. Indeed, a habit of underestimating the odds against him seemed to carry him through them better, perhaps, than it sometimes carried others, whom this trait of his was apt to involve in difficulties not of their seeking. He argued that it was less likely to be looked for in London than anywhere else. Perhaps this was true, but Lieutenant Grant, after a couple of days in the capital, found himself facing other problems which had not previously weighed upon him. First, the problem of getting back to France from England, without papers of any kind. Second, the problem of remaining in London, without money, of which he had exceedingly little left. And third, the problem of his reception by his colonel, Lord Ogilvy, when he did rejoin his regiment, since, from the moment when he had escaped from Colonel Leighton's clutches, the blame for his continued absence could no longer be laid at that old gentleman's door. Indeed, 
Hector foresaw that the sooner he returned to France, the less likely would he be to find a court-martial awaiting him there. So it was, for him, a trifle dejectedly, that he walked this evening along the Strand towards his lodging in Fleet Street, wondering whether after all he could contrive to slip through at the coast, without the papers which he saw no means of obtaining. He had just come from the White Cock Tavern, a noted Jacobite resort, where converse with several English adherents of that cause had neither impressed him nor been of any service. And no one seemed to be able to tell him exactly why the plot had failed to mature. And they'd all talked a great deal, to be sure, but were obviously the last persons to help him. And the young soldier thought them a pack of fenillons. If he were only back in the highlands, Ardroy, he could wager, would have got him over to France by some means or other. He was nearing the sculptured gateway of Temple Bar when a beggar-woman, who had been following him for some time, came abreast of him, and, shivering, redoubled her whining appeal for alms. More to be rid of her than from any charitable impulse, Hector put his hand into his pocket, and so remained, staring with an expression of horror at the suppliant. His purse was gone. Little as he had possessed an hour ago, he now possessed nothing at all. "'I've been robbed, mother,' he stammered, and his face must have convinced the woman that here was no feigned excuse, for, grumbling, she turned and went her way. The late passers-by looked curiously at this young man who stood so rigid under the shadow of Temple Bar. All Hector knew was that he had had his purse at the White Cock a short time ago, for he had played his score from its meagre contents. Had he dropped it there, or had it been stolen from him since? He must go back at once to the tavern and inquire if it had been found. And then it occurred to him, and forcibly, that to go in and proclaim his loss would reveal him as a simpleton who could not look after his property in London, or might even seem as though he were accusing the habitués of the white cock of the theft. Either idea was abhorrent to his proud young soul. He glanced up. The winter moon, half-eaten away, sailed eerily over the shriveled harvest on the spikes of Temple Bar. Townley's head, he knew, was one of the two still left there, and the commander of the doomed garrison of Carlisle. Hector's own might well have been there, too. And, although those grim relics seemed to be grinning down at him in the moonlight, and, though the action was not overwise, and the young Highlander took off his hat before he passed onwards. Yes, London was a hostile and an alien town. He had not met one Scot there, not even him whom he had thought certainly to meet, young Finlay Macfair of Glensheen, and the old chief's son, who had been in the plot. And did he know where to find him, he reflected now. He might bring himself to appeal in his present strait to a fellow gale, where he would not sue to those spiritless English Jacobites. And, at the white cock, and they would know young Glensheen's direction. Hector turned, at that thought, and began quickly to retrace his steps, lifting his hat again, half defiantly, as he passed the heads of the seven years' vigil, and soon came once more to the narrow entry off the strand in which the white cock was situated. There were still some customers there, drinking and playing cards, 
and as he came down the little flight of steps inside the door, an elderly Cumberland squire named Fanshawe, with whom he had played that evening, looked up and recognized him. Oh, back again, Mr. Grant. For oh, God's sake, you look as though you had received bad news. Oh, I trust it is not so. Oh, there's nothing amiss with me, sir, replied Hector, annoyed that his looks could so betray him. But I was foolish enough to go away without inquiring the direction of my compatriot, Mr. Finlay Macfair of Glensheen, and I returned to ask if any gentleman here could oblige me with it. At first it seemed as if no one there could do this, until a little grave man, looking like an attorney, hearing what was toward, got up from an equally decorous game of piquet in the corner, and volunteered the information that Mr. Macfair lodged not far from there, in Beaufort Buildings, opposite Exeter Street, the second house on the right. Hector could not suppress an exclamation. He lowered his voice. He lives in the Strand, as openly as that? And why? The English government could put their hands on him there any day. Oh, I suppose, replied the little man, that they do not wish to do so. After all, bygones are bygones now, and Mr. Macfair, just because he was so promptly clapped into the tower, never actually bore arms against the elector. Oh, but he keeps himself close and sees few people. And perhaps, however, as you come from the Highlands, he will receive you, sir. Oh, I, I think he'll receive me, quoth Hector a trifle absently. His ear had been caught by some conversation at a little distance, in which the word purse occurred. And the conversation was punctuated with laughter, whose cause was evidently the exiguous nature of the purse's contents, and he distinctly heard a voice say, I'll wager tis his, and the Scotchman's. They're all as poor as church mice. I'll ask him. How oh, egad, if he's so needy, he will claim it in any, and began another voice, which was briefly recommended to lower itself, or the Scotchman would hear. And in another moment, a young gentleman, plainly trying to school his features to the requisite gravity, was standing before Hector, saying, Our purse has just been found, dropped, doubtless, by some gentleman or other, but as no one here claims it, it must be the property of one who has left. Is it by chance yours, Mr. Grant? And he displayed, hanging across his palm, Hector's very lean and rather shabby green silk purse. The color mounted hotly into the young Highlander's face. And do what he would, he could not restrain a half-movement of his hand to take his property. But almost swifter than that involuntary movement, instantly checked, was the proud and angry impulse which guided his tongue. "'No, sir, I'm not aware of having lost my purse,' he said very haughtily, and translated the tell-tale movement of his hand into one towards his pocket. He affected to search into that emptiness. "'No, I have mine, I thank you. It must be some other gentleman's.' And having thus made the great refusal, Hector, furiously angry but outwardly dignified, marched up the steps and out of the white cock, as penniless as he had come in. The door had scarcely closed behind him before Mr. Fanshawe joined the group round the purse-holder, his jolly red face puzzled. Oh, I could have sworn that purse was Mr. Grant. At any rate, I saw him pull forth just such another when he was here an hour ago. 
Oh, but tis impossible it should be his, said someone else. Who ever heard of a Scot refusing money? Still less his own money. The depleted purse passed from hand to hand, until one of the company, examining its interior more closely, extracted a worn twist of paper, opened it, and burst into a laugh. May I turn wig, if the impossible has not happened. Oh, the purse is his, sure enough. Here's his name on an old bill, from some French tradesman in Lille. And the lad pretended that he had his purse in his pocket, all the time, exclaimed Squire Fanshawe. Oh, he must be crazy. No, he must have overheard our comments, I'm afraid, said a voice, not without compunction. Oh, aye, that will be it, said the elder man. You should be less free with your tongues, young gentleman. I've a notion where Mr. Grant lodges, and if you'll make over the purse to me, and damn, if I don't send it to him tomorrow. Now take out the bill, then, sir, advised one of the original jesters, and he will be devilish puzzled to guess why it reached him. On the whole, it was well that Hector did not know how fruitless was his pretense as he walked away towards Fleet Street again with an added antipathy to London in his heart. And what else could he have done, he asked himself, in the face of such insolent comment? And, after all, it was not a great sum which he had so magnificently waved from him, and the young French lady who had made the purse for him three years ago had almost passed from his memory. That somebody besides himself, the woman with whom he had found a lodging, would also be the poorer for his fine jester, and did not occur to him that night. 2. Ten o'clock next morning saw Lieutenant Grant outside Beaufort Buildings, and knocking, as directed, at the second house on the right-hand side. The woman who opened told him to go to the upper floor, as the Scot gentleman lodged there. Up, therefore, Hector went, and, knocking again, brought out a young, shabbily-dressed manservant. "'Can I see Mr. Macfair of Glensheen?' Oh, "'Himself is very busy,' replied the man, frowning a little. "'He was obviously a Highlander, too.' "'Already,' oh, asked Hector. Oh, "'I came early, hoping to find him free of company.' Oh, "'Himself is not having company. He's writing letters.' Hector drew himself up. "'Tell Mr. Macfair,' he said, in Gallic, "'that his acquaintance, Lieutenant Hector Grant, of the Régiment d'Albany, is here, and earnestly desires to see him.' At the sound of that tongue, the frown left the gilly's face. He replied in the same medium that he would ask his master, and, after seeking and apparently receiving permission from within, opened wide the door of the apartment. Hector, as he entered, received something of a shock. To judge from his surroundings, Finlay Macfair, son and heir of a powerful chief, was by no means well-to-do, and he, or his servant, was untidy in his habits. A small four-post bed with dingy crimson hangings in one corner, together with an ash-strewn hearth, upon whose hobs sat a battered kettle and a saucepan, showed that his bedchamber living apartment and kitchen were all one. In the middle of the room stood a large table, littered with a medley of objects, and papers, cravats, a couple of wigs, a plate, a cane, a pair of shoes. The owner himself, in a shabby flowered dressing gown, 
sat at the clearer end of this laden table, mending a quill. A red-haired young man of a haughty, a note over agreeable cast of countenance. A half-empty cup of coffee stood beside him. He rose as Hector came in, but with an air a great deal more arrogant than courteous. How oh, at your service, sir. What can I do for you? Oh, it's not from him. I'll ever borrow money, resolved Hector instantly. But Finlay Macphair's face had already changed. Oh, why, and tis Mr. Grant of Lord Ogilvy's regiment. How oh, that stupid fellow of mine misnamed you. Oh, sit down, I pray you, and take a morning with me. Away with that cold filth, Hashimas, he added petulantly, indicating the coffee cup with aversion. They took a dram together, and Hector was able to study his host, a young man in the latter half of the twenties, like himself, well-built and upstanding. The open dressing-gown showed the same mixture of poverty and pretension as the room, for Mr. Grant had now observed that over the unswept hearth with its cooking-pots hung a small full-length oil portrait of a man whom he took to be old John Macfair, and the chief himself, in his younger days, much betartened and beweaponed, with his hand on an immensely long scroll, which would, no doubt on closer view, be found to detail his descent from the famed Red Finlay of the battles. In the same way, the chief's son wore a very fine embroidered waistcoat over a shirt, which had certainly been in the hands of an indifferent laundress. Well, Mr. Grant, said he, when the morning had been tossed off, and on what errand do you find yourself here? I shall be very glad to be of assistance to you, if it is within my power. He put the question graciously, yet with all the air of a chief receiving a not very important taxman. I've had a misfortune, Mr. Macfair, which, if you'll permit me, I will acquaint you with, said Hector, disliking the prospect of the recital even more than he had anticipated. And he made it excessively brief. Last September, a spy had treacherously knocked him on the head in the highlands and abstracted the pocket-book containing all his papers. Since then, he had been confined in Fort William. Of the subsequent theft of his money in London, he was careful not to breathe a word. "'How lost all your papers in the highlands and been shut up in Fort William,' said Finlay Macfair, his sandy eyebrows high. "'Oh, I might say, you've not the luck, Mr. Grant.' And why, pray, do you tell me all this? Hector, indeed, was almost wondering the same thing. He swallowed hard. Oh, because I don't know how the devil I'm to get out of England without papers of some kind. And yet I must rejoin my regiment at once. And it occurred to me. Oh, I can't procure you papers, sir, broke in young Macfair, short and sharp. Oh, no, naturally not, agreed Hector surprised at the sudden acrimony of his tone. Oh, but I thought that maybe you knew someone who... He stopped, still more astonished at the gaze which his contemporary in the dressing-gown had fixed upon him. Oh, you thought that I... I... knew someone who could procure you papers, repeated Finlay the Red, getting up and leaning over the corner of the untidy table. Oh, what, pray, and do you mean by that, Mr. Grant? Oh, why the devil should you think such a thing? 
or I'd have you remember, if you please, that Lincoln's Inn Fields are within convenient distance of this place, and I suppose you're familiar with the use of the small sword. Hector, too, had leapt to his feet. He had apparently met with a temper more inflammable than his own. Yet he could imagine no reason for the sudden conflagration. He was too much taken aback for adequate anger. Oh, Mr. McFair, I've no notion of what I've done to offend you, so it is impossible for me to apologize. Not that I'm in the habit of apologizing to any man, highland or lowland, he added, with his head well back. For a moment or two, the two young girls faced each other like two mutually suspicious dogs. And then, for the second time, Finlay McFair's demeanor changed, and the odd expression went out of his eyes. How oh, I see now that it's I who should apologize, Mr. Grant, and to a fellow Highlander, I can't do it. I misjudged you. I recognized that you did not intend in any way to insult me by hinting that I was in relations with the English government, which was what I took your words to mean. And he swept with a cold smile over Hector's protestation that he was innocent of any such intention. I fear that I'm ever too quick upon the point of honor, but that's a fault you'll pardon, no doubt, for I'm sure you are as particular of yours as I of mine. Well, sit down again, if you please, and let us see whether our two heads cannot find out some plan for you to get clear of England, without the tracasserie at the ports which you anticipate. Rather bewildered, Hector complied. And now his fiery host had become wonderfully friendly. He stood with his hands in his breeches' pockets and said thoughtfully, now, couldn't I be thinking of someone who would be of use to you? There are gentlemen in high place of Jacobite leanings, and some of the city aldermen are bitten that way. Unfortunately, I myself have to be so prodigious circumspect, lest I find myself in prison again. Oh, nay, Mr. McFair, I'd not have you endanger your liberty for me, cried Hector on the instant. Once in the tower is enough, I'm sure, for a lifetime. Oh, near two years there, when a man's but twenty, is enough for a brace of lifetimes, the ex-captive assured him. Oh, nay. Oh, let me think, let me think. He thought, walking to and fro meanwhile, the shabby dressing gown swinging round the fine athletic figure, which Hector noted with a tinge of envy. Yes, he resumed, after a moment, and there's an old gentleman in government service, who's under some small obligation to me, and he chances to know Mr. Pelham very well. I should have no scruples about approaching him. He'll remember me. And as I say, he's in my debt. I'll do it. Aye, I'll do it. He threw himself into his chair again, and in the same impulsive manner pulled towards him out of the confusion a blank sheet of paper, which, sliding along, revealed a half-written one beneath. At that lower sheet, Young Glensheehan looked and smiled. I was about writing to Secretary Edgar at Rome when you came, as you see. He pushed the page towards his visitor, and Hector, who had no wish to supervise Mr. McFair's correspondence, but could not well avert the eyes which he was thus specifically invited to cast upon it, did see a few scraps of Finlay McFair's ill-spelt, if loyal, remarks to that trusted servant of their exiled kings, something about constant resolution to venture my own person, 
sincere, true, and real sentiments, and a desire to be laid at his majesty and royal eminency's feet. But he could not think why he should be invited to peruse them. And the letter upon which he was now engaged, on his compatriot's behalf, Finlay did not offer to show the latter, though had Hector looked over the writer's shoulder, he would have been more impressed with its wording than with the vagaries of its orthography, and would certainly have found its contents more arresting than those of the loyal epistle to Rome. Dear Grandpapa, wrote Finlay Macfair of Glenshean, with a scratching quill, to the old gentleman in government service, whom, since he was no relation of his, he must have known very well, and thus playfully to address. Dear Grandpapa, get our friend to write a pass for a Mr. Hector Grant to go to France without delay. He's harmless, and my obliging an officer of Lord Ogilvy's regiment in this manner will not fail to raise my credit with the party, which is a matter I must now pay particular attention to. Besides, I am in hopes to make some little use of him later. And let me know, if you please, when we shall meet to talk of the affair I last wrote of, otherwise I must undo what I have begun. Excuse my anxiety, and believe me most sincerely, with great esteem and affection, your most obliged humble servant, Alexander Jeanson. And this was addressed, in the same independent spelling, to the Honourable Gwyn Vaughan, at his house in Golden Square. But Hector did not see the direction, for the writer folded and sealed in the letter in an outer sheet, on which he wrote, To Mr. Thomas Jones, at Mr. Chelburne's, a chemist in Sherwood Street. Well, that is not the real name of my acquaintance, Mr. Grant, said the scribe with great frankness, handing him the missive. And yon is the address of an apothecary, at whose shop you should leave this letter, with as little delay as possible. Call there again by noon to-morrow, and I'll engage there'll be somewhat awaiting you, and that will do what you wish. Hector thanked him warmly, so genuinely grateful, and that he failed to perceive that he had not wronged the punctilious Mr. Macfair, after all, for he did know someone who could procure useful papers for a Jacobite in difficulties. The benefactor, however, cut short his thanks by asking him a question which somewhat allayed his gratitude. "'Oh, I hope, Mr. Grant,' he said, looking at him meaningly, and that there was nothing of a compromising nature among the papers which were taken from you in the Highlands.' Hector reddened, having all along desired to obscure that fact. He fenced. And no papers lost in such a manner, Mr. Macfair, but must, I fear, be regarded as compromising. Oh, but naturally, replied young Glenshean, somewhat impatiently, as you no doubt found when you were in Fort William. Did they question you much there, about them? No. My papers were not in their hands, as far as I know. Oh, then, why were you? Oh, it is a long story, not worth troubling you with. Oh, but the gist of it is that I gave myself up. He had succeeded in astonishing Mr. Macfair. How oh, gave yourself up? exclaimed the latter. Who in God's name, what for? Gave yourself up at Fort William. Oh, I fear the knock on your head must have been a severe one. Oh, perhaps it was, said Hector shortly. At any rate, I accomplished nothing by doing it, and on Christmas Day I escaped. Oh, my dear Mr. Grant, you astonish me more and more. 
Oh, I took it that you had been released. And after escaping, you came to London, of all places. Oh, it was on my way to France, said the adventurer sulkily. And then he added, in a not very placatory manner, If you wish to give me to understand that on this account you prefer to withdraw the letter you've written, here it is. He drew it out of his pocket. Finlay Macfair waved his hand. Oh, not for worlds, and not for worlds. It is the more needed, and your escape shall make no difference, even though it was unknown to me when I penned that request. But I should like to know, Mr. Grant, why you gave yourself up. You must have had some extraordinary reason for so extraordinary a proceeding. And as Hector hesitated, foreseeing to what a truthful answer might lead, he added, in a tone which very plainly showed offence, Oh, I've surely earned the right to a little more frankness on your part, Mr. Grant. The claim could not be gainsaid. Hector resigned himself, and in as few words as possible gave that reason. Even then, he somehow contrived to keep out Dr. Cameron's name. Glensheehan threw himself back in his chair and looked at the narrator under lowered lids. Oh, so you played this heroic role because you considered that you had compromised your brother-in-law by the loss of your papers. Oh, then there was something compromising in them. And no, not to him. Oh, I see I had best explain the whole matter, said Hector in an annoyed voice. And being tired of cross-examination, came out bluntly and baldly with everything. And the loss of his prematurely written letter to Cluny Macpherson. Mostly unintelligible, he hoped owing to its cipher. Ardroy's going back to warn Lochthorny, his finding instead Dr. Cameron, and bringing him to his house, the search there, and Ewan's arrest. To all this the young chief listened with the most unstirring attention, his hand over his mouth, and those curiously pale hazel eyes of his fixed immovably on the speaker. Oh, there, that's a tale, said he slowly at the end. And this letter of yours, with its mention of the arrival of Loch Dorney and Dr. Cameron. Had you never discovered what had become of it? No, but I'm pretty sure, as I say, replied Hector, that it never found its way to Fort William. I was, I confess, in despair lest harm should come to either of them through its loss, but I cannot think that any has. It is now more than three months since it was stolen from me, and by this time the government has probably learned from other sources of their presence in Scotland. Frowning over his own confession, and remembering too at that moment how Alison that day at Fort William had spoken of searches made by the military after the doctor, he did not see the sharp glance which was cast at him. Aye, it is very probable they know it, said Mr. Macfair dryly. What part your lost letter may have played in their knowledge? He shrugged his shoulders. And, indeed, he went on, with an air of disapproval. Why cannot anyways commend this mission of my kinsman Lochtornis and Dr. Cameron's? Had the prince taken my advice on the matter when he made it known to me? As, considering my large interests and influence in the Western Highlands, he had done well to, and they would not have been sent upon so risky an undertaking. However, since it has been set on foot, I hope my cousin Lochdorny will find means to report to me on his proceedings there, which, indeed, added the future chief, it is no less than his duty to do. As yet I have had no word from him, 
it would be well did I hear from the doctor also. Why well, only trust he may not be engaged in damping down the ardour of the clans, as he did three years ago. How Dr. Cameron damped down the clans, exclaimed Hector, thinking he had not heard aright. Oh, my dear Mr. Macfair, he's more like, surely, to inflame them with too little cause. And how should the prince have selected him for this mission, if that were his habit? Finlay shrugged his shoulders. Archie Cameron has always had the prince's ear since the day when Lochiel sent him to Arisaig to dissuade his royal highness from his enterprise. And moreover, it was to the doctor's own interest to come to Scotland again. Oh, there's always the treasure of Loch Arkig, about which he knows even more than Cluny, more than any man alive. The half-sneering expression habitual to his face leapt into full life as he went on. That gold is like honey to a bee, in his case. He dipped pretty deeply into it, and did the immaculate Dr. Cameron, when we were in Lochaber together in the forty-nine. Oh, but not upon his own account, cried Hector, and not for himself, Mr. Macfair, that I'll never believe. Oh, your sister is married to a man, and that's akin to the doctor, you told me, was Glensheehan's retort to this. Oh, unfortunately, I was there with Archibald Cameron at the time. Well, there's many a man that's true enough to the cause, but can't keep his fingers from the cause's money. I don't blame him over much, with that throng family of young children to support. I've known what it is to be so near starving myself, Mr. Grant, and that I've had to sell my shoe buckles for bread. And t'was when I was released from the tower. So I'm aware why Archie Cameron finds it suits him to go back to the Highlands at any cost. Hector stared at him, incredulous, yet conscious of a certain inner discomfort. For it was quite true that young Glensheehan had accompanied Dr. Cameron and his own kinsman Loch Dorney to the Highlands in 1749, and rumours had run among the Scottish exiles over the water, and that since that date the two latter were scarcely on speaking terms. But when Hector had learnt that these two were going over again together, he had supposed the report much exaggerated. Still, he who spoke with such conviction was the future chief of Glensheehan, and deeper, surely, in the innermost councils of Jacobitism than he, a mere landless French officer. Oh, Mr. Grant, I'm going to ask you a favour in my turn, here said Finlay the Red, with an air of having dealt conclusively with the last subject. I expect you know Captain Samuel Cameron of your regiment. How Crookshanks, as we call him, answered Hector a little absently, being engaged in dissipating the momentary cloud of humility, and by the reflection that as one Highland gentleman he was the equal of any other, and chief or no. How the brother of Cameron of Glen Nevis, and that's the man you mean. Oh, that is the man. They say that one good turn deserves another. Or will you then take him a letter from me? I'm wanting a messenger this while back, and since you are returning to the regiment, here is my chance, if you will oblige me. Only too pleased to confer some obligation, as a species of set-off against his own, Hector replied that he would be delighted, so Finlay once more seized the paper and took up his pen. For a few seconds he nibbled the quill reflectively, and the fraction of a smile at the corner of his mouth. Then he dashed off a few lines, sealed the missive carefully, 
and handed it to its bearer. "'Or you'll not, I hope, be robbed again, Mr. Grant,' he observed. And yet, despite the little laugh which accompanied the words, Hector felt that after what had passed he could not well take offence at them. He accepted the gibe and the letter with meekness, and prepared to take his leave. Young Glensheehan rose, too. "'Your visit, Mr. Grant,' he said agreeably, "'has been of this advantage to me, "'that I know now from a first-hand source, "'and that my kinsman and Dr. Cameron "'did really make their appearance in the Highlands this autumn. "'In the absence of news from either of them, "'I've sometimes wondered whether the plan had not fallen through at the last. "'Although, even at that,' he added, smiling, "'and the evidence is scarcely first-hand, "'since you did not actually set eyes on either of them.' "'But my brother-in-law, with whom I was imprisoned,' began Hector. "'Oh, I, I forgot. A foolish remark of mine, that. I'll pass the testimony as first-hand,' said Finlay lightly. "'But where, I wonder, did the doctor go after he had evaded capture at your brother-in-law's house?' "'How oh, that I never knew,' responded Hector. "'In Fort William, neither Ardroy nor I had much opportunity for learning such things.' "'He'll have made for Loch Arkick, as usual, I expect,' commented young Macphair. He looked at the table. "'Oh, Mr. Grant, you'll take another tram before you leave.' "'No, thank you, Mr. Macphair,' replied Hector with a heightened colour. If he could not swallow Mr. Macphair's insinuations against Dr. Cameron's honesty, neither would he swallow his whisky. He went and took up his hat, young Glensheehan watching him with that curl of the lip, so natural to him, and that he appeared always to be disdaining his company. And then Hector remembered the question which, during these days in London, no Englishman had satisfactorily answered for him. Striving to banish the resentment from his voice and look, he said, "'May I venture to ask a question in my turn, Mr. Macphair? I pray do not answer it, if it be too indiscreet. But, as I've told you, it was the proposed scheme for a certain course of action in London, which brought me over the sea last September. And why did that scheme come to naught? Mr. Macphair did not seem to find the question indiscreet, nor did he pause to consider his answer. Why, for the same reason that the rising failed in forty-six, he replied with prompt scorn. Because your English Jacobite is a man of fine promises and no performance, and as timid as a hare. And the very day was fixed, the 10th of November, and nothing was done. However, perhaps you'll yet hear something to rejoice you before the summer is out. Well, a good journey to you, Mr. Grant, and commend me to my friends over there. I'm very glad to have been of service to you. In his worn dressing gown, surrounded by that clamorous disorder, Fionle Rua nevertheless dismissed his visitor with an air so much de haut en bas, and that a sudden heavy strain was thrown on the cord of Hector's gratitude. He bowed, biting his lip a little. "'I hope I may be able to repay you one day, Mr. Macphair,' he said formally, and thought, "'and may the devil fly with me to the hottest corner of hell if I don't, and somehow.' Shemus called the young chief, raising his voice. "'Show this gentleman downstairs.' and the gilly, who was peeling potatoes on the landing, hastened to obey. Hector was chagrined, and that he could not slip a veil into the bony hand, 
but not having a penny himself, how could he? Arrogant, touchy, and vain as a peacock was a summary of his late host as he walked away from the Strand in the direction of the chemist in Sherwood Street. But the peacock had done him a real service, and in mere gratitude he ought to try to forget that today's impression of Finlay McFair of Glensheen had not been a pleasant one. In any case it was soon swept away by the mingled relief and mortification called by a small packet awaiting him at his lodging, which, on being opened, was found to contain his purse. How oh, then they had known of his loss all the time at the White Cock! Or guessed! He had only made himself more of a laughing-stock by refusing to receive his property. 3. When Sheemus returned to his potato-peeling, his master, on the other side of the door, was already resuming his correspondence. But not the letter to Secretary Edgar, which he had shown to Hector. From a locked drawer he extracted another sheet of paper, headed simply Information, and underneath the few lines already there he wrote. Pickle has this day spoken with one from the Highlands, who says that Dr. Cameron and Macfair of Loch Dorney were certainly there at the end of September, and Dr. Cameron was then come into Loch Haber, by which it may be seen that the information sent by Pickle in November last was very exact. But where the doctor then went, the informant did not know. It would not do for Pickle to go himself into those parts, for the doctor distrusts him, he knowing too much about the doctor, and besides the risk is too great, and Pickle being of such consequence there. But if he had more money at his disposal, he could employ it very well in finding a person who could go, and undertakes he'd find out more in a day than any government trustee in a week, or soldier in a month. Or Pickle would be apt to correspond with persons not suspected by the disaffected, who could be on the watch for these men, if it were made worth their while. But Pickle's chance have already cost him a deal of money, and he has never received more than his bare expenses, and is at this moment in debt to several persons in this town, in spite of the great promises made to him, and the great services he hath already performed, both in regard to affairs in the Highlands, and among the pretenders' party in England. If something be not paid immediately, and Pickle is not disposed to. He broke off, hastily covering the paper. How oh, damn you, Hashimus, what do you want? The gilly might have entered upon a stage queue. If I'm to buy flesh for dinner, he began timidly, in his native tongue. His master sprang up in wrath. How do you tell me that you've spent all I gave you, and death without a priest to you? Oh, here, take this, and see you make it last longer. Pulling a small handful of silver out of his breeches pocket, he flung a few coins towards him, and as Shemus meekly stooped to pick them up from the floor, sat down again and counted over the rest, his brow darkening. He really was poor, still. Yet, for all his pretense to Hector, no one stood in less danger than he of being again confined by the English government, and well he knew it. But though that government left him at large to continue his services, it paid them chiefly in promises, and it is galling to have sold your soul, and to betray your kin, and your comrades, and, as far as in you lies, your prince, and to get so few of the thirty pieces in return. And perhaps the paymasters thought but poorly of what they obtained from the informer. 
Did the letter writer himself suspect that, as he sat there now, his chin on his hand, and that scowl darkening his face? It did not seem likely, for no services that Finlay McFair of Glensheen could render, however base, would ever appear to him other than great and valuable. Behind those strange light eyes was no place for remorse or shame, and the almost crazy vanity which dwelt there left them no entrance to his spirit. End of section 9section 10 of the gleam in the north by d k broster this librivox recording is in the public domain read by elin chapter 10 an enemy hath done this 1 the snow gave no signs of ceasing it had never been blinding it had never swirled in wreaths against one Yet this steady and gentle fall, only beginning about midday, had contrived to obliterate landmarks to a surprising degree, and to make progress increasingly difficult. When Ewan had started this morning, he had not anticipated a snowstorm, though the sky looked heavy, and even now the fall was not enough to stop him, but he found his surroundings getting darker than was pleasant, and began to think that he might possibly be benighted before he reached the little clochen for which he was bound. Although it was the second week in February, Ardroy was still west of Loch Linne, in Sunard, in fact. At first, indeed, when, leaving his hiding-place on Mialbriach, he had wandered from croft to croft, seeking shelter at each for no more than a night or two, he had known that it would be folly on his part and to attempt to cross the loch since all the way southwards from Fort William the soldiers must be on the lookout for him. Yet he had not gone far up Glen Clovulin when he heard that those whom he had so unluckily encountered that morning at Ardgower were a party on their way from Mangary Castle and to relieve the guard quartered at Balachulish over the body of James Stewart in order that it should not be taken down for burial. They could not possibly have known at that time of his and Hector's escape, or perhaps even in their ignorance they might not have molested the boat's crew had they landed. Oh, but five weeks had elapsed since that episode, and it might be assumed that even Fort William was no longer keeping a strict lookout for the fugitives. Ewan was therefore working his way towards the Morven district, whence, crossing Loch Linne into Appin, he intended to seek his uncle's house at Inverna Cree, and once more get into touch with his own kin. To Alison, his first care, he had long ago dispatched a reliable messenger with tidings of his well-being, but his own wandering existence these last weeks had cut him off from any news of her, since she could never know where any envoy of hers would find him. Pulling his cloak, which, from old habit, he wore more or less plaid fashion, closer about him, Ewan stopped now for a moment and took stock of his present whereabouts. The glen which he followed, with its gently receding mountains, was here fairly wide, so wide, in fact, that in the small, close-falling snow and fading light he could not see across to its other side. He could not even see far ahead, 
so that it was not easy to guess how much of its length he still had to travel. I believe I'd be wiser to turn back and lie the night at Duncan McCall's, he thought, for if he was where he believed, the little farm of Kulubanye, at which, McCall being an appen man and a Jacobite, he had already found shelter in his wanderings, must lie about two miles behind him, up the slope of the farther side of the glen. He listened for the sound of the stream in the bottom, thinking that by its distance from the track he could roughly calculate his position. Even in that silence he could hardly hear it, so he concluded that he must be come to that part of the valley where the low ground was dangerously boggy, and though the track, fortunately, did not traverse it, but kept to higher ground. He was therefore still a good way from the mouth of the glen. But while he thus listened and calculated, he heard, in that dead and breathless silence, not only the faint, far-off murmur of water, but the murmur of human voices also. Hardly believing this, he went on a few steps, and then paused again to listen. Yes, he could distinctly hear voices, but not those of persons talking in an ordinary way, for the speaker seemed rather to be repeating something in antiphon, and the language had the lilt of Gallic. Once more Ardroy went forward, puzzled as to the whereabouts of the voices, but now recognizing the matter of their recitation, for there had floated to him unmistakable fragments about the snare of the hunter, and the terror by night, and the arrow by day. A snow-sprinkled crag suddenly loomed up before him, and going round it he perceived, somewhat dimly at first, who they were that repeated Gallic psalms in the darkening and inhospitable landscape. A little below the track, on the flatter ground which was also the brink of the bog, rose two shapes which he made out to be those of an old man and a boy, standing very close together, with their backs to him. A small lantern threw a feeble patch of light over the whitened grass on which it stood. Beside it lay a couple of shepherd's crooks and two bundles. Ewan was much too amazed to shout to the two figures, and the snow must have muffled his approach down the slope. The recitation went on, uninterrupted. And there shall be no evil happen unto thee, said the old man's voice, gentle and steady. Oh, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling, repeated the younger, more doubtfully. For he shall give his angels charge over thee. How to keep thee in all... The lad who had turned his head broke off with a shrill cry. Oh, sir, sir, he has come, and the angel... To keep thee in all thy ways, finished the old man serenely. Then he too looked up and saw Ewan standing a little above them, tall and white all over the front of him with snow. "'Oh, I told you, Callum, that it would be so,' he said, looking at the boy, and then courteously to Ewan, and in the unmistakable accents of a gentleman. "'Oh, you come very opportunely, sir, to an old man and a child. Oh, if it be that you're not lost yourself, as we are.' Ewan came down to their level, and, in spite of the falling snow, removed his bonnet. Oh, I think I can direct you to shelter, sir. And do you know that you are in danger of becoming bogged, also? Oh, I was beginning to fear it, 
said the old man, and now there was a sound of weariness, though none of apprehension, in his voice. We are on our way to Duncan McCall's at Kuluanye, and have lost the path in the snow. If it would not be delaying you overmuch, perhaps you would have the charity to put us into it again. You are quite near the track, sir, replied Ardroy, but I will accompany to Kuluanye. Will you take my arm? The shortest way, and perhaps the safest, to regain the path is up the slope. The old man took the proffered support, while the boy Callum, who had never removed his soft, frightened gaze from the figure of the angel, caught a fold of Ewan's wet cloak and kissed it, and the rescuer began to guide both wayfarers up the whitened hillside. Oh, but, sir, protested the old traveller, breathing a little hard, when they were all back upon the path, or we are perhaps taking you out of your own road. And they were, indeed, since Ewan's face was set in the opposite direction. But there was no question about it. He could not leave the two, so old and so young, and to find their doubtful way to Kuluanya alone. Oh, I shall be glad enough to lie at Mr. McCall's myself tonight, he answered. I was almost on the point of turning back when I heard your voices. Do I go too fast for you, sir? Oh, not at all, and I hope I do not tire this strong arm of yours. We were just coming in our psalm a while ago, too, and they shall bear thee in their hands, and that thou hurt not thy foot against the stone. He turned round with a smile, and to the boy following behind. Oh, you see how minutely it is fulfilled, Callum. Are you of these parts, sir? No answered Ewan. I'm a Cameron from Lochaber. Ah, observed the old man, if you are a Cameron, as well as being the Lord's angel to us, then you will be of the persecuted church. How oh, an Episcopalian, do you mean, sir? Yes, answered Ewan, but not an angel. Oh, Angelos, as you are no doubt aware, Mr. Cameron, means no more in the original Greek than a messenger. He gave the young man the glimpse of a beautiful smile. But let us finish the psalm together as we go. You have the Gallic, of course, for if we say it in English, Callum will not be able to join with us. And going slowly, but now more securely, on the firmer ground, and they said the remaining four verses together. To Ewan, remembering how as a child he had wondered what it would be like to go upon the lion and adder, and whether those creatures would resent the process. The whole episode was so strange as to be dreamlike. Who was the saintly traveller, so frail-looking and so old, who ventured himself with a boy of sixteen or so, through bogs and snow in a highland February? Ere they reached Duncan McCall's little farm, up the other side of the glen, he had learnt his identity. His charge was a Mr. Oliphant, formerly an Episcopal minister in Perthshire, who had been moved by the abandoned condition of these poor sheep in the western highlands to come out of his retirement, or, rather, his concealment, for he had been ejected from his own parish, and to visit them and administer the sacraments. He was doing this at the risk of his liberty, it might be said of his life, for transportation would certainly kill him, and of his health in any case, it seemed to Ewan, 
therefore indomitable and unperturbed, and though he seemed in spirit, he was not of an age for this winter travelling on foot. When he had learnt his name, Ewan was a little surprised at Mr. Oliphant having the Gallic so fluently, but it appeared that his mother was Highland, and that for half his life he had ministered to Highlanders. The light from the little farmhouse window and the hillside above them, at first a mere glow-worm, cheered them through the cold snowy gloom which was now full about the three. Nearer they saw that the door, too, stood open, half blocked by a stalwart figure, for Duncan McCall was expecting Mr. Oliphant, and in considerable anxiety at his delay. He greeted the old man with joy. He would have sent out long before this to search for him, he said, but that he had no one of an age to send. He was a widower with a host of small children, and was at last on the point of setting forth himself. Oh, but now, thank God, you are come, sir, and you could not have found a better helper and guide than Mr. Cameron of Ardroy, he said warmly, ushering them all three into the living-room, and the cheerful blaze. Oh, come, Ben, sirs, and you, little hero. It was not I found Mr. Cameron, said Mr. Oliphant, with his fine, sweet smile. He was sent to us in our distress. Oh, indeed, I think it must have been so, agreed McCall. How oh, will you not all sit down and warm yourselves, and let the girl here dry your cloaks? Oh, you'll be wise to take a dram at once. He fussed over the old priest as a woman might have done, and, indeed, when Ewan saw Mr. Oliphant in the light, he thought there could hardly be any one less fitted for a rough journey in this inclement weather than this snowy-haired old man with the face of a scholar and a saint. But there was for the moment no one but the boy Callum with him in the kitchen, when Mr. Oliphant turned round from the fire to which he had been holding out his half-frozen hands. Oh, Angelos, whom will you take an old man's blessing? I was about to ask for it, sir said Ewan, bending his head, and the transparent hand was lifted. So Ardroy had a private benediction of his own, as well as that in which the house and all its inmates were included, when Mr. Oliphant read prayers that night. Ewan was up betimes next morning, to find the snow gone from the ground, and a clear sky behind the white mountain tops. Aye, I was surprised to see that fall, observed Duncan McCall. We've had so strangely mild a winter. There were strawberries, they say, in bloom in Lochiel's garden at Achnacarry near Christmas Day. And though God knows, they can have had little tending. How did you hear that in Lochaber, Mr. Cameron? And was a kind of portent. How oh, I wish it may be a good one, said Ewan his thoughts swinging regretfully back to forfeited Achnacarry and his boyish rambles there. Oh, by the way, you have no news, I suppose, of someone who owns a very close connection with that name and place. Oh, you know whom I mean. Oh, Mr. Chalmers, queried the farmer, using the name by which Dr. Cameron often passed. And now, I've heard nothing more since I saw you a few weeks sign, Mr. Cameron, until last Wednesday, when there was a cousin of mine passed this way, and said there was a rumour that the doctor was in Arnamurkan again of late. How do you tell me so? exclaimed Ewan. 
Hard to think that all this time I've been in Art Gower and Sunart. I've never heard a whisper of it, though I know he was there before Christmas. Yet it is possible that he has returned, mayhap to his kinsman and Dungallan. For Dr. Cameron's wife was a Cameron of Dungallan, and there were plenty of the name in Arna Murgen. Oh, I think it will likely be no more than a rumour, said Mr. McCall. For by, somebody told me last night, and there will soon be another man in Arna Murgen who'll need to walk warily there, and they're not for the same reason. Oh, you mean Mr. Oliphant? Yes, I know that he set on going there, despite the presence of the garrison at Mingary Castle. And it is an uncommon rough journey for a man of his age and complexion. We should have someone with him, and besides that lad. Could not some grown man be found to accompany him? Duncan McCall shook his head. I'm not here, Mr. Cameron. Oh, I would offer to go myself, but that I have the whole work of the farm on my hands just now, for my herdsman is ill. Yet, it's true, he needs a stronger arm than yon Callum's. Ewan stood in the doorway reflecting, a tribe of shy, fair children peeping at him from odd corners unnoticed. The idea which had come to him needed weighing. He did greatly long to get back across Loch Linne, and if he offered himself as Mr. Oliphant's escort, he would be turning his back upon Appin and all that it meant, even if it were but for a short time. On the other hand, supposing Archie were in Arna Murchan after all, as so often, two half-motives coalesced to make a whole. And when Mr. Oliphant had breakfasted, he made his proposal. Oh, but, my dear Mr. Cameron, you admitted last night that you were already on your way towards Appin. Ewan replied that this morning, because of some news which Mr. McCall had just given him, he was, on the contrary, and desirous of going into Arna Murchan, and if you would allow me to be your escort, sir, he added, I should account it a privilege. And he meant what he said. There clung to this gentle and heroic old man, going on this entirely voluntary and hazardous mission, and that air of another sphere which either attracts or repels. Both from instinct and from training, it strongly attracted Ardroy, who felt also that for once in his life he could render a real service to the church of his baptism, continually persecuted since the revolution, and now since Culloden, and driven forth utterly into the wilderness, and become the dearer for it. You make a sacrifice, however, Mr. Cameron, said the old priest, looking at him with eyes as keen as they had ever been. I'll be sure that it will be repaid to you in some manner. Oh, I want no repayment, sir, other than that of your company. And to what part of Arna Murchen do you propose to go? Mr. Oliphant told him that his plan was to visit, in that remote and most westerly peninsula of Scotland, and, indeed, of Britain, the hamlet of Kilmory on the north and of Kilhoan on the south. But Ewan and Duncan McCall succeeded in dissuading him from going to the latter, because of its dangerous proximity to Mingary Castle with its garrison. The inhabitants of Kilhoan could surely, they argued, be informed of his presence at Kilmory and come thither with due precautions against being observed. 
How does a strange thing broke out to you in during this discussion, and that the Episcopalian people of England, whose established church is Episcopal, and whose prayer book we use, should acquiesce in this attempt to stamp out the sister church in Scotland? Oh, Mr. Cameron, said Duncan McCall impressively, when the one whom I will not name enters into an Englishman, he makes him not only wicked, but downright foolish. Oh, I've not been in England myself, but I've remarked it. Now in this country that one works otherwise, and there's more sense in a Scots misdoings. There was a twinkle in Mr. Oliphant's eyes at this dictum, for, like most of the best saints, he had a strong sense of humour. I'm glad that you can find matter for patriotism, even in the devil's proceedings, Mr. McCall. 2. So they set out on their journey together, and the young man and the old, on this tolerably fine February day, and travelled over bad tracks and worse roads and towards Arnamurchen. The boy Callum was originally only to have gone as far as Akareko, where Mr. Oliphant hoped to find another guide, but now there was no need for him to come even as far as this, and he returned from Kuluanya to his father's croft, and to tell for the rest of his life the story of a rescue in the snow by an archangel. The distance which the two wayfarers had to traverse was not great, but besides the bad going, Ewan was so afraid of pushing on too quickly for Mr. Oliphant's strength that he probably went slower than they need have done. However, after a night spent with some very poor people who gave them of their best and refused the least payment, they came with twilight on the second day to Kilmori of Arnamurken and the thatched dwellings of fisherfolk who looked perpetually upon mountainous islands rising from an ever-changing sea and knew scarcely a word of English. By them Mr. Oliphant was received as if he had come straight from heaven, and the tall gentleman, his escort, the Dunya Wesselmoor, with the respect due to a celestial centurion. And word went instantly round to all the scattered crofts, to Sordal, to Ockel, to Ploke, to Sanna, and in particular to Kilcoen on the southern shore. Next day Mr. Oliphant was hard at work, baptizing, and catechizing, and visiting. It was pathetic to see the eagerness and reverence of these poor and faithful people, who once had been under the care of a zealous Episcopal minister, now torn from them, so that they were left shepherdless, save when the Presbyterian intruder, as they considered him, came there on his rare visits to this portion of his vast parish, and his ministrations, and they naturally did not wish to attend. So now they came streaming in from all the hamlets and crofts in the neighbourhood, and from Kilhoen came even a couple of coal fishermen, Episcopalians, whose boat was in harbour there. But these, like all from the mull side, came with caution, lest the garrison at Mingeri Castle should hear of unusual gatherings at Kilmori, and come to investigate the cause, which would certainly result in the penal laws being set in motion against Mr. Oliphant and perhaps against his hearers, who far exceeded the scanty number of five which was permissible at one service. Fortunately, it appeared that the soldiers had for the moment had something else to occupy them than hunting out Episcopalians. The colonel of the garrison had been missing since the previous day, when he had gone out alone and taking a gun, and had not returned. 
The inhabitants of Kilmory said uncompromisingly that if he never came back, it would be a good day for them, for he was a very evil and cruel man whom the soldiers themselves hated. But they had this consolation in his temporary disappearance, and that the military, if they were still searching for him, would hardly trouble Kilmory or the coast round it, where there was nothing to be shot save gulls. Nevertheless, when Mr. Oliphant held a service that afternoon in the largest of the cottages, it was thought well to place a few outposts, and Ewan, though he would have liked to hear the old man preach, offered to be one of these. So, about sunset, he found himself walking to and fro on the high ground above the hamlet, whence he could survey the beginning of the road, which dipped and wound away southwards over the moorland towards Mingary Castle and Kilcohen. But northward the island peaks soared all blue and purple out of the sea, like mountains of chalcedony and amethyst, headland upon headland, stretched against the foam, and the eye travelled over the broken crests of that wild land of Moidart, pressing each after each other as wave follows wave, and to the lovely bay where the prince had landed seven and a half long years ago, and whence he had sailed away. Into silence. Farther still the coast swept round to an unseen spot, both bitter and sacred in memory, where Ewan's murdered English friend slept under some of the whitest sand in the world. And miles away to the northeast lay his own home and the Eagle's Lock. Ewan sighed. When should he see his wife and children again? Soon, now, please God. But spring, too would soon be come, and with the spring his sword was promised, if the time were ripe. Oh, but would it be? He knew nothing. The dwellers in these remote parts knew less, and, from what he had already heard from them, his hopes of finding Archibald Cameron in Arna Murchen and learning of the prospects of an uprising were little likely to be fulfilled. With the fall of twilight, and the momentary afterglow faded rapidly, and the strange, jagged heights of sky began to withdraw into the magic region whence they had emerged. Voices came up from the hamlet, and the sentry saw that the service must be over, for men and women were streaming away. They would reassemble in the morning, for next day early, Mr. Oliphant was to celebrate the Eucharist. Ewan's watch was ended. As he turned to go, still gazing, half unconsciously, towards Loch Nanuam, he struck his foot against some slight obstacle. Glancing down, he saw that it was a little shriveled bush, scarcely even a bush, no more than eighteen inches high. There was nothing on its meagre stem but very fine, thickly set thorns, not even a rag of the delicately cut leaves, which, with those thorns and its delicious haunting fragrance, mark off the little wild white rose of Scotland, and the burnet rose, from every other, and especially from its scentless sister of English hedgerows in June. Ewan stood looking down at it. Oh, yes, this rose was ill to pluck and ill to wear, but no other grew with so brave a gesture in the waist, and none had that heart-entangling scent. 3. Next morning had come. 
there was not a sound from the men and women kneeling in the cold light upon the sand and grass, and nothing but the indrawn breath of the sea, now and then a gull's cry, and that old, clear, steady voice. It was at the epistle that some intense quality in it first riveted Ewan's attention. And forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against you, even as Christ forgave you, so also do you. Had not these simple, reverent people much to forgive their oppressors? The altar stood in the doorway of a cottage. It was only the rough table of common use, covered with a coarse, clean cloth. A fisherman's lantern had been placed at either end, for it was not yet very light. Mr. Oliphant wore the usual preacher's black gown and a stole, nothing else of priestly vestment. There were no accessories of any kind, nothing but what was poor and bare, and even makeshift, nothing but the rite itself. Just before the consecration, the sun rose. And when, with the rest, Ewan knelt in the sand before that rude, transfigured threshold, he thought of Bethlehem, and then of Gennesaret. And afterwards, looking round at the little congregation, fisherfolk and crofters, all, he wondered when these deprived and faithful souls would taste that bread again. Not for years, perhaps. And when would he, scarcely in better case, and in whose company? He was to remember this strange and peaceful Eucharist when that day came and brought one still stranger. Ardor could not help Mr. Oliphant in his ministrations, so he went out fishing with some of the men on that sea, which, for once, had none of the violence of winter. Gleams of sunshine chased each other on the peaks of rum, and all the day seemed to keep the serenity of its opening. And that evening, his last there, Mr. Oliphant preached on the gospel for the day, on the parable of the tares, and this time Ewan was among the congregation. Yes, one had to be denied the exercise of one's religion, truly to value it, to listen hungrily, as he found himself listening. He had not so listened to Mr. Hayes' discourses, a good man though he was, in the days when Episcopalian worship was tolerated. The next morning, after a moving scene of leave-taking, the old priest left Kilmory under Ewan's escort. Many of his temporary flock would have desired to come part of the way with him, but it was judged wiser not to risk attracting attention. Mr. Oliphant now meaning to visit Salen on Loch Sunat and Strontian, Ardry intended to go with him as far as Salen, and he had a further plan, which he developed as they walked, and that after he had visited Sunart and Ardgower, Mr. Oliphant should follow him into Appen, staying with Mr. Stewart of Invernacree, where, all stewards of that region being, as their religious and political opponents put it, madly devoted to the Episcopal clergy, he would be sure of a most ready welcome. They were discussing this plan, as they went along the side of Loch Muddle, where the road led above the little lake and wild deer-haunted country. The water had a pleasant air this morning, grey winter's day though it was, and the traveller stopped and to look at it. Oh, to tell truth, said Mr. Oliphant, I was not aware that Arna Murchen possessed any loch of this size. It minds me a little of... 
He stopped, for Ewan had gripped his arm. How oh, forgive me, sir, but I heard just then a sound not unlike a groan. How could it be? They both listened intently. For a while, there was nothing but the silence which, in very lonely places, seems itself to have the quality of noise. Then the sound came again, faint and despairing, and this time Mr. Oliphant, too, heard it. It was not easy to be sure of its direction, but it appeared to come from the tree-covered slope above them. So Ewan sprang up at this, and began to search among the leafless bushes, helped after a moment or two by catching sight of a gleam of scarlet. And that colour told him what he was going to find. He climbed a little higher, parted the stems, and took one look at the figure sprawled in a tangle of faded bracken, and called down to his companion. Ah, Mr. Oliphant, here he is, and it must be the missing officer from Mingary Castle. And then he pushed his way through, and knelt down by the unfortunate man. It seemed a marvel that he was still alive. One arm was shattered, and the white facings of his uniform were pierced and blood-stained, and half his face, and not a young face, was a mask of blood. Yet he was semi-conscious, his eyes were partly open, and between the faint moans which had drawn attention to him, he uttered again and again the word, Water. From the condition of the fern round him, it looked as if he had tried to drag himself along to the tiny streamlet, which could just be heard whispering down at a little distance. But he had never got there. "'How oh, is this murder, thank you?' asked Mr. Oliphant in a horrified voice. Ah, "'You have some brandy with you. Thank God for that.' But Ewan had by now caught sight of something lying a little way off. "'No, sir, not murder.' nor has been gored by a stag, as I thought at first. How tis a burst fowling piece has done it. There it lies. And he has been here, a poor wretch, nearly two days. They wetted the dried blackened lips with brandy, and tried to get a little down the injured man's throat, but he seemed unable to swallow, and Mr. Oliphant feared that the spirit might choke him. Now try water first, Mr. Cameron, he suggested, if you can contrive to bring some in your hands from the burn there. Holding his hollowed palms carefully together, Ewan brought it. Oh, we must, by some means or other, inform the garrison of Mingary at once, said the old priest, carefully supporting the ghastly head. Oh, I wish we had Callum with us. Speed is of the first importance. How oh, shall I lower his head a little? Yes, it would be better. "'But I can reach Mingary as quickly as the lad would have done,' said Ewan, "'without giving a thought to the undesirability of approaching that stronghold. "'Oh, I'm spilling this. He's past drinking, I fear. "'Oh, certainly, if help is not soon.' "'He gave a sudden violent exclamation under his breath, "'and, letting all the rest of the water drain away, "'sank back on his heels, staring as though he had come on some unclean sight. "'For... Under the trickles of water and brandy, the dried blood had become washed or smeared off the distorted face, sufficiently at least, and to make it recognizable to a man who, even in the mists of fever, and seven years ago, had during twenty-four hours seen more than enough of it. Now what is wrong, then, 
asked Mr. Oliphant, but he did not glance up from the head on his arm, for he had begun cautiously to try the effect of brandy again. Ewan did not answer for a moment. He was rubbing one wet hand upon the ground, as though to cleanse it from some foul contact. Oh, I doubt it is worth going for help, he said at last in a half-strangled voice. If one had it, the best thing would be to finish this business with a dirk. Oh, I suppose you are jesting, Mr. Cameron, said the old man in a tone which showed that he did not like the jest. How far do you think it is to Mingary Castle? The distance does not concern me, answered Ewan. I'm not going there. And at that, Mr. Oliphant looked up and saw his face. It was not a pleasant sight. What, what has come to you? he exclaimed. You said a moment ago that if assistance were not brought. Oh, I had not seen then what we were handling, said Ewan fiercely. He got to his feet. One does not fetch assistance to vermin. You are proposing that we should leave this unfortunate man here to die. Ewan looked down at him, breathing hard. I will finish him off, if you prefer it. It is the best thing that can happen to him and to all the inhabitants of Arnaburgan. You have heard what his reputation is. And, turning away, he began blindly to break a twig off the nearest birch tree. Mr. Oliphant still knelt there for another second or two, silent, and perhaps from shock. And then he gently laid down the head which he was supporting, came round the prostrate scarlet figure, and over to his metamorphosed companion. Mr. Cameron, it is not the welfare of Arna Murgen which you have in your mind. This man has done you some injury in the past. Is it not so? Ewan was twisting and breaking the birch twig, as though it were some sentient thing which he hated. But for God's mercy, he had made a traitor of me, he said in a suffocated voice. Yet that I could forgive, since he failed. But he has my friend's blood on his hands. There was a silence, save for the faint moaning behind them. And for that, said Mr. Oliphant sternly. You will take his blood on yours. I've always meant to, if I got the chance, answered Ewan, with a dreadful implacability. I would it had been in fair fight. This is not what I would have desired. But I am certainly not going to save his worse than worthless life at the expense, perhaps, of your liberty and mine. I am not going to save it in any case. He slew my best friend. You made mention, just now, Mr. Cameron, of God's mercy. Aye, so I did, said Ewan defiantly. But God has other attributes, too. This, he looked for a moment over his shoulder. This, I think, is his justice. How oh, that is possible, but you are not God. You are a man who only yesterday received the greatest of his earthly gifts, with, as I believed, a humble and a thankful heart. Today, you, who so lately drank of the cup of salvation, refuse a cup of cold water to a dying enemy. Ewan said nothing. What was there to say? 
He stood looking down through the trees onto the log, his mouth set like a vice. "'Are you going to Mingari, my son?' asked Mr. Oliphant, after another brief and pregnant silence. "'No, I'm not.' "'Very well, then. I must go.' But his voice was not as steady as heretofore when he added, "'Oh, I would to God that it were you.' In the grim white face before him, the blue eyes darkened and blazed. Ardroy caught hold of the old man's arm. Oh, there's one thing that's certain, Mr. Oliphant, and that is that you are not going to enter the lion's den for the sake of that scoundrel. Oh, the lion's den? Is that what is keeping you back? A natural distaste for endangering yourself? Oh, I thought it had been something less of man's weakness and more of the devil. Oh, so it is, retorted Ewan stormily. Oh, you know quite well that I'm not afraid to go to Mingari Castle. Then why will you not let me go? I'm only an old, unprofitable man whose words are not heeded. If I do not come out again, what matter? Oh, it is true. I shall not get there near as quick as you. And every minute, he glanced back, and the faint chance of life is slipping further away. But one of us has to go, Mr. Cameron. Will you lose my arm? His worn face was infinitely sad. Ewan did not comply with his request. He had his left hand pressed to his mouth. In truth, his teeth were fixed in the back of it. Some help, if a strange one, to mastery of the wild passions which were rending him, and to keeping back, also, the hot tears which stung behind his eyes. He heard Mr. Oliphant say under his breath, in accents of the most poignant sorrow. And then appeared the tares also. Such tall, such noble wheat. Truly, the enemy hath done this. He understood, but he did not waver. He would not go for help. Mr. Cameron, time is very short. Let me go. Do not lay this death on my conscience, too. Lose me, in the name of him whom you are defying. Ewan dropped the speaker's arm, and dropped his own hand. It was bleeding. He turned a tempest-ridden face on Mr. Oliphant. It shall not be the better man of us two who goes to Mingari, he said violently. I will go. You force me to it. And even though he be carrion, by the time help comes, will you be satisfied? Mr. Oliphant's look seemed to pierce him. By the time you get to Mingari, Highlander though you are, your vengeance will be satisfied. As to that, Ewan shrugged his shoulders. But you, how will you ever reach Salen alone? Oh, Salen, I will not start for Salen until help has come. I shall stay here. And as Ewan began a fierce exclamation, he added, Oh, how can I, a priest, leave him lying at the gate and go away? And then they will take you. No, I will not go to Mingari. I will not go unless you give me your word to withdraw yourself as soon as you hear the soldiers coming. How that might serve, since I shall not say that any is with him, and they will not think of searching. 
Mr. Oliphant considered a moment. Yes, I will promise that, if it will ease your mind. And later, if God will, we may meet again on the Salem Road, you overtaking me. Now go, and the Lord Christ go with you. Angelos. For an instant his hand rested, as if in blessing, on Ewan's breast. And the young man snatched it up and put it to his lips, and without a word plunged down the slope to the track below, so torn with rage and shame and wild resentment and that he could hardly see what he was doing. But once on the level, he clenched his hands and broke into the long, loping highland trot, which he could keep up, if need were, for miles. He might, in Mr. Oliphant's eyes, be no better than a murderer and a savage. He might, in his own, be so weak of will that a few words from an old man, whom he scarcely knew, could turn him from his long-cherished purpose. He might be so cursed by fate as to have met his enemy in circumstances which had snatched from him his rightful revenge. But, at least, if he were forced to play the rescuer, he would keep his word about it. Out of this brief but devastating hurricane of passion, that intention seemed to be the only thing left to him. That, and the physical capacity to run and run towards the black keep of Mingary Castle, which he so little desired to enter. End of section 10 Section 11 of The Gleam in the North by D. K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Eileen. Chapter 11 The Castle on the Shore. The ancient stronghold of the Macians of Ardnamurchen, where James IV had held his court, which had repulsed Lochlan MacLean with his Spanish auxiliaries from the wrecked Armada galleon and had surrendered to Colquitto's threat of burning in Montrose's wars, which had known Argyle's seven weeks' siege and Clan Ranald's relief, stood on the very verge of the shore gazing over at Mull. At high tide the sea lapped its walls, or at least the rocks on which those walls were built, save on the side where a portion of the fortress had its footing on the mainland. It looked very grim and grey, this winter morning, and the runner, drawing breath at last, felt exceedingly little inclination to approach it. And yet air, flag, garrison were all unstirring. Mingary seemed a fortress of the dead, staring across dull water at a misty shore. No one was visible, save the sentry on the bridge crossing the fosse, which guarded the keep on the landward, its most vulnerable side. As Ewan approached, the man brought his musket to the ready and challenged him in the accents of the lowlands. Ardroy made his announcement from a distance of some yards. I'm come to tell you that your missing colonel is found. He's lying in sore straits on the slopes of Loch Muttle, and if you want him alive, you must send without a moment's delay to fetch him. And the sentry shook his head. Why well, cannot take messengers? You mon come ben and see an officer. Oh, I cannot wait to do that, replied Ewan impatiently. I'm in great haste. I tell you that your colonel is very badly hurt. 
His fowling-piece must have burst and injured him. A man, as you should ken that I could not leave my post if King Geordie himself was dying, said the sentry reproachfully, and suddenly uplifting his voice, bellowed to someone within, his sergeant, his sergeant, and motioned vehemently to Ewan to pass him. Most unwillingly, Ardroy crossed the bridge, and at the end of the long, narrow entry into the fortress, found himself confronted by a stout sergeant, who listened, with no great show of emotion, to his tale. Oh, "'I'll fetch the captain. He'll wish to see you, sir.' The wish was by no means reciprocal, and Ewan cursed inwardly at the recognition of his social status, from which he had hoped that his shabby clothes, worn for so long in bad weather, would have protected him. "'I am in great haste,' he asserted once more. Surely you can give the captain my message. But even as the last word left his lips, two officers, talking together, suddenly appeared from he knew not where, under the archway. Yet once again Ewan made his announcement, and this time it had an immediate effect. A few questions were asked him. He described the spot in detail. Hasty orders were given for a party to set forth instantly with a litter and restoratives, and then the captain asked Ewan if he would be good enough to guide them into the place, which, after a second or two of hesitation, he agreed to do. Indeed, provided he were not asked questions of too searching a nature on the way, the arrangement would suit him well. But he was not destined to profit by it. He had noticed the other officer, a young lieutenant whose face seemed vaguely familiar, looking at him closely. Now, when this latter could gain the attention of his superior, he drew him aside and whispered to him. The captain swung round to Ewan again, looking at him with a gaze which the Highlander did not at all appreciate. Oh, by the way, you have not told us your name, sir, he remarked. We are so much in your debt that we should be glad to learn it. Ewan helped himself to that of the good tenant of Kuluwanya. He was, he announced, a Macaul, originally of Appen. Oh, well, Mr. McCall, said the captain, obliged as we are to you for your information, I don't think we will trouble you to accompany us to Loch Muddle. And then I bid you a good day, responded Ewan, making as if to go. But he had known instantly that the subaltern's whisper meant he would not be allowed to walk out of Mingary Castle. The officer took a step forward. Well, not so fast, if you please. I'll ask you to await our return here, Mr. McCall. Oh, in God's name, why? demanded Ewan, playing astonishment. But he was not really astonished. This was what came of running into a hornet's nest. Oh, that I shall be able to tell you when I return, said the officer. For one thing, I think you have made a mistake in your name. A sergeant, a guard. Oh, my name! What is wrong with my name? You are not proposing to keep me here illegally, when I have just saved your colonel's life for you. Oh, believe me, I regret it, Mr. Mr. McCall, returned the captain suavely. I doubt if there is much illegality about it, but since there is such great need of haste at the moment, we cannot possibly discuss the matter now. Oh, Sergeant, have this gentleman safely bestowed. And how do you suppose that you are going to find your injured officer without me? asked Ewan sarcastically, as a guard came trooping under the archway. 
how easily, if the details you have furnished are correct. And I shall be the first to apologize to you, Mr. McCall, for this detention, if there is cause for apology. How come, Burton? He swung on his heel and hurried off. Her resistance were foolish. Grinding his teeth, Ewan went whither he was taken, and three minutes later found himself in a dusky place with oozing stone walls and a floor of solid rock. There was a barred window just out of his reach, a worm-eaten table, a rough bench, and a broken pitcher, and nothing else. As Mingary Castle was of thirteenth-century construction, this spot might well have been even more disagreeable, but Ewan in his present temper would have found a boudoir intolerable if he could not leave it at will. He was furiously angry, angry even with Mr. Oliphant. One might have known that this would happen. Here he was, caged up again, and all for rendering, as much against his will as a good action had ever been done in the history of the world, a service to a man whom he hated and had sworn to kill. He sat down upon the bench and cursed aloud. When he ceased, it was to become conscious of fresh details of his prison, notably the rustiness of the iron bars across the window, and to hear, faint but distinct, the sound of waves not very far away. He might be here for weeks in the Seagirt Hole. Or Guthrie, if he recovered sufficiently, might recognize what he had done for him and let him go out of gratitude. That would be the most intolerable consequence of all, and that Guthrie should know he had played the Good Samaritan. Ewan jumped up. Out of this place he would be before Guthrie was brought into it. He felt capable of tearing down the stones with his nails, of wrenching the iron bars of the window out of their sockets with his bare hands. But that was not necessary. In his pocket, surely, was still the file which had won his and Hector's freedom from Fort William. What great good fortune that no orders had been given to search him. Without a moment's delay, he pushed the crazy table under the window and, mounted rather precariously upon it, began to file feverishly at the middle bar. Ardroy had worked away for perhaps an hour, his hands red with rust, hoping that no one would hear the noise of scraping. When it came to him where he had seen the face of the subaltern who had whispered about him to the captain. It was the lieutenant who had brought up Hector, the day that youth had surrendered himself at Fort William. He had, without doubt, recognized the other ex-captive. There was more need of haste than ever. His case was worse than yet supposed, and even if Guthrie, distasteful as the notion was, should be smitten with gratitude, he would hardly dare to let an already escaped prisoner go free. By three o'clock the first bar was through. It was half worn away, or it would not have yielded to the file in the time. The second was eaten too, and when in about three quarters of an hour that also parted and could be wrenched aside, and by cautiously thrusting his head out, Ewan was able to ascertain where he was, only about ten feet or so above the basaltic rock on which the castle was built. 
At the base of this rock leapt the waves, not an encouraging sight. But if, as he judged, it was now high tide or thereabouts, he guessed that by half tide the rock, and indeed a good part of the little bay to the west of the castle, would be clear of these invaders. He thought this probable, because to his left he could see that a stone causeway, now slapped by the waves, had been constructed for use when the tide was low. Ardroyd drew his head in again, and resumed his filing, debating, while he worked, where he should aim for when he got out. He certainly must not immediately go back in the direction whence he had come. And then, should he make across the peninsula to its northern shore, or should he strike out for its extreme end? As suddenly he thought of the two coal fishermen in Kilcoan Bay. If they had not yet sailed for their island, he might induce them to take him in their boat back up Loch Sunat, and, even if they were gone, he could perhaps find someone else at Kilcoan willing to do this for him. It would be a good plan to get clear off the peninsula before he had the whole garrison of Mangari searching for him. It might no doubt be better, for the purpose of getting away unseen from the castle, and to wait until nightfall. But by then, who knew, the sawn bars might be discovered, and he removed to another dungeon. Moreover, the detestable Guthrie, living or dead, would have been brought in and be under the same roof with him. He must be gone before either of these things could happen. And at length the last bar, a very thin one, gave. The daylight was now beginning to fade a trifle, and the waves were no longer washing against the rock below. As Ewan had anticipated, a considerable segment of the little bay was free of water altogether. Once down on the shore, he had only to cross this and climb the low grassy cliff at some convenient spot, and he would be well away from Mengeri, even perhaps out of sight of it. It seemed, indeed, a good deal to hope that before he got as far as that he should not have been seen and shot at. But, he reflected, that only a very few of the garrison could possibly have observed his entrance or know of his being made prisoner. That a number, including two officers at least, had gone off to Loch Muddle, and that the rest would surely not fire without reason at an unknown individual making his way, not too fast, along the shingle below them. It required, in the end, more muscular effort to pull himself from the shaky table entirely up to the level of the little window, and to get himself through this, and then to lower himself the other side. At last, with a good deal of strain and wriggling, he was through, dropped onto the shelf of rock at the bottom of the masonry, and crouched there a moment or two, holding his breath, for men's voices and laughter had all at once drifted ominously to his ears. But he could not make out whence they came and, in any case, must go on. There was a place on the side of the shelf nearest to the sea, which was much wider, and which seemed to overhang the shore. But this end of it Ewan naturally avoided, creeping along in the opposite direction, pressed as close as possible to the grey stones of the keep. But soon he could do this no longer, for the shelf had narrowed until it ceased altogether, on which, Finding foothold with some difficulty, he clambered down the rock itself and to the beach. 
but when the fugitive was there, he instantly stood motionless, for he saw, only too clearly, what the overhanging shelf had hidden from him. Above him towered Mingari, with who knew what observers on its battlements. But between him and the sea, at no great distance, was worse. A party of about a dozen soldiers, uproariously washing their feet in a pool left by the tide. It was their voices which he had heard on the ledge. One moment of sharp dismay, and Ardroy turned, quick as a fox, and began to tiptoe away over the shingle. If he could only reach the low cliff over there, unobserved, he would soon be up that. He did not think that he had been seen. His impression was that the men mostly had their backs turned in his direction, or were absorbed in their chilly ablutions. And their talk and guffaws might cover the scrunch of the shingle under his feet. But to get away from so many eyes without being seen by any was too much to ask for. A minute later, cries of, Now halt, you there, halt and tell your business, reached him, and he knew that measures were on foot to enforce the command. Ewan did not look back. He took to his heels, a pretty certain means, he knew, of ensuring a bullet's being sent after him. But he was too desperately set upon escape to weigh that risk. Instant pursuit, of course, there would be. He heard the cries with which it started, and the sound of men scrambling to their feet over stones. Yet not a single shot. Two facts, indeed, were in the Highlander's favour, though he knew it not. No redcoat had committed so unheard of a folly as to burden himself with his musket when off duty, and not a single man of the party at the pool happened to be fully shot when he took the alarm. Those with one boot paused to pull on the other, and those with none, less cautious or more zealous, began the chase as they were, and over shingle and edges of bare rock, and did not get very far. Meanwhile, therefore, Ewan had quite a respectable start, and made the very best of it. In a few minutes he had reached the slope, part grass, part rock, part bare earth, and had hurled himself up it. For one instant he thought that a patch of earth over which he had to pull himself was going to give way and slide with his weight, but his muscles carried him to a securer spot before this could happen. And, once on the top, he found a stretch of rough but not precipitous going between him and the hamlet of Kilcohen, which now seemed his best goal. To turn the other way was to pass the fortress again. A glance showed him that no one had yet topped the cliff. He ran like a deer, through heather stems and bog myrtle, up slopes and down them, and when his track was crossed by a tangled hollow with a burn at the bottom, he plunged gratefully down, for it meant cover, and he could work along it unseen for a little. When he was obliged to come up again on the other side, he saw with thankfulness the forms of only three pursuers running stumblingly towards the ravine which they had yet to cross, and he took fresh breath and sped still faster over the moorland. Soon, as he went, Kilhoan Bay, with its string of white cottages round the shore, was fully visible, under the remains of a smouldering sunset. He could see only one sailing boat at anchor. Was that the McLean's, the coal men's? 
In another three minutes, he was near enough to see figures moving about in her. And perhaps she was about to sail with the ebb. He came, still running very fast, and though the pace was distressing him, through a little cluster of fishermen's huts at the edge of the strand. Oh, is that boat out yonder from Col? he shouted to an old man at his door, and understood the ancient to pipe after him as he passed that it was, and just upon sailing. And Ewan pulled up and breathless. Oh, I want a boat. Oh, take me to her. But he could see without being told that there was no boat within easy reach. He threw a look behind him, and two scarlet-clad forms were doggedly pounding along towards the cottages and would be on the shore in another couple of minutes, shouting and waving to the coal men, who seemed to have been attracted by what was going on. He ran out along a wet spit of rock, and pausing only to remove his shoes, and plunged into the water. The sea was as calm as a summer's, and colder than anything he had ever imagined. The yellow-bladdered fingers of the low-tide seaweed slid gropingly round him, but in a moment he was clear of them, and gasping for breath, was striking out furiously for the fishing boat. Then he was underneath her counter, and the McLeans, with exclamations which showed that they recognized him, were helping him over the side. And, as by now the two persistent soldiers could be heard shouting, with gesticulations, for a boat, and there was no need for the dripping fugitive to explain from whom he was escaping. Oh, will you take me with you? he got out, panting. It was folly now, even to suggest their putting about and passing Mingary to go up Loch Sunat, as he had once thought of doing. Aye, will we, said the elder MacLean. Oh, you'll please give my brother a hand with the sails, then. He ran forward to the anchor. The pursuers had not even got hold of a boat, before the little fishing vessel was moving up the top of the Sound of Mull, towards the open sea, and the flat mass of the Isle of Col, vaguely discernible, about eight miles away, while Ewan, after making fast the last halyard, had sunk drenched and exhausted on a thwart. An hour and a half later he was sitting on a heap of nets in the bows of the Ron, the seal, clad in an odd assortment of garments. His own were hanging up to dry. For a February night in these latitudes the air was remarkably warm, as he had already noticed, thinking not of himself, but of the old man to whom he had lent his arm for so many miles. But, surely, Mr. Oliphant had gained some kind of shelter for the night. Only Ewan prayed, and that shelter were not Mingary Castle. Though darkness would soon shroud the little boat from Mingary, the MacLeans were not willing to put about, because, other considerations apart, they were carrying meal to their families and call, where it was needed immediately, and Ewan had to acquiesce in this reluctance, feeling, as he did, that they had already rendered him a much greater service than he could have expected of them, in thus taking him off under the very eyes of the redcoats. The Ron flapped before the following wind, and the sail flapped. The younger MacLean was singing under his breath some air of the outer isles, full of cadences at once monotonous and unexpected. A hidden moon was tinging the heavy clouds of a mull, and at last Ewan had time to think. But thought was tumbled and broken, like those clouds. He had met his enemy, 
after all these years, and, well, what had he done with him? I saved him, or tried to, at another's bidding, and with a reluctance which amounted to abhorrence. A small credit could he take to himself for that deed. The wind freshened and seemed to be changing, too. It ran cool over Ewan's damp hair. Deron was feeling the Atlantic swell, a blessed little boat, which had cheated his pursuers. And where now was his heat of baffled revenge? A mere cinder in his breast. Certainly it burnt with flame no longer, quenched, perhaps, as the half-fantastic thought whispered, by the cold waves of Kilcoan Bay. And was he glad of it? Or did he miss the purpose which had lain buried in his heart so long, the purpose which he had avowed to Archibald Cameron that evening at Ardroy, but which he could never again take out and finger over, like a treasure? Ewan did not know. Half to console himself for its loss, he reminded himself that he too had had a score, and a heavy one, against that wretched man moaning his life away above the wintry loch and that he could never have been quite certain that his vengeance was entirely on his dead friend's account. He could not have paid Keith Wyndham's score without paying his own as well. Time passed. Ardroy still lay without moving, half propped against the gunwale, his head on his arm, seeing more clearly with every wave that heaved, dimly frothing, past the boat's nose, from what Mr. Oliphant had saved him, beginning indeed to have shuddering glimpses of a deep and very dark place in himself, full of horrible things. How well did the Gallic name the enemy, the one from the abyss! But that very deliverance had parted him from the old man. It might be for ever, and he could not say to him now what he longed to say. Perhaps he would never be able to. How will you sleep, sir? came a voice in his ear. One of the Maclean's was bending over him. I will not make call till morning now. The wind's gone round, and we must take a long tack to the northward. I brought a sail to cover you. Ewan looked up. The moon was gone, and the clouds, too. The sky was velvet dark and sown with myriad points of light. Oh, thank you, McLean. Yes, I'll sleep a while. And to himself, he said, as he stretched himself on the brine-scented net. Thank God, and a saint of his, that I can. End of section 11「いつもの生ビールの